I mean, arguably, St. Paul is the greatest evangelist who ever lived. And so the whole history of Christianity would be radically different without St. Paul and his mission in the church. I'm Chloe Langer. I'm joined here by Joe Heschmeyer from Holy Family School of Faith here in the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas and from Shameless Popery. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks, Chloe. So the new evangelization is very much a Catholic buzzword when it comes to conversations about Catholicism. But what is the new evangelization? I think the best way to understand it is to go back to the source and understand it as a re-evangelization. The expert on this subject of the new evangelization is St. Pope John Paul the Great. In a document called Redemptorius Missio, in paragraph 33, he writes, quote, There is an intermediate situation, particularly in countries with ancient Christian roots, and occasionally in the younger churches as well, where entire groups of baptized have lost a living sense of the faith, or even no longer consider themselves members of the church, and live a life far removed from Christ and his gospel. In this case, what is needed is a new evangelization or a re-evangelization. And that's the end of the quote. So yeah, to piggyback on your point, this isn't an evangelization to people who have never encountered the gospel. It's a re-evangelization to people who have heard but have fallen away since. Exactly. So a lot of times when you hear Catholics refer to the new evangelization, it's not clear what they or we mean. And sometimes I'm not sure they have a clear sense of what they mean as well. But at least when the term was coined by JP2, his argument was, you know, when we think and talk about evangelization, going out and making disciples of all nations, we imagine going to these far-flung and exotic locales and going to be a missionary somewhere really far away from home with people who've never heard the gospel before. But his point is, okay, sure, that's good, and that's always been the mission of the church, but we're facing in an unprecedented way A crisis now where Christian nations and even a lot of baptized Catholics have no living sense of the faith. And so maybe you need to start converting those people, even if they think that they're already converted. Mm -hmm. Because they're living lives far removed uh, from Christ and from his gospel. Some of them don't consider themselves part of the church anymore. Some of them probably do. But either way, they're not living as Catholics. So it really is a task of evangelization to bring the gospel to the people who already think that they have the gospel of Christ or already think they've heard it. But this is a new evangelization. It's different in this way. If you show up, you say you're St. Francis Xavier and you show up in, in Asia in a city like Goa that has never heard the gospel before, you're presenting something fresh and new and there's often kind of an excitement around it. We see it in Acts 17 when the Athenians are really excited when St. Paul comes to Greece and evangelizes them. And they're like, wow, this is a really interesting theory. They kind of laugh at it a little bit, but it's fresh and new and exciting. And one of the things that's a hallmark of the new evangelization is that we're trying to evangelize people for whom the gospel frequently isn't fresh or new or exciting. Mm -hmm. It's those for whom the gospel has been maybe tasted and rejected, or maybe they've gotten a distortion of the gospel. Or maybe they've just had it kind of as the ambiance or environment in which they were raised. Um, Increasingly, I think we're finding a situation where people may not even have that much level of contact or exposure Mm -hmm. with the gospel, which is a double-edged sword. It means we might be entering, strangely enough, a period in which 
the proclamation of the gospel really is fresh and new. But most people in America seem to at least think that they have a general understanding of Christianity. So they're like, yeah, I, I know more or less what, what you've got to say, and I, I don't believe it. We talked a lot about this in our first episode of the Catholic Podcast when we talked about the stats and facts behind why people leave Catholicism and who have left Catholicism. But when it comes to the new evangelization, I think it's important to keep in mind that if people who've left Catholicism were a growing denomination, it would be the second top right. denomination. So mm-hmm. after the Catholic Church, the largest denomination in America would be ex-Catholics, mm-hmm. if you thought of them as a denomination. Right. And so just as in the Reformation, when you suddenly have this growing body of Lutherans or of Reformed Protestants or of whoever, when you see that number growing and growing, that is a red flag that something is going wrong with the transmission of Catholicism from one generation to the next. And the church needs to take that to heart. So in that case, it led to the Council of Trent. Mm -hmm. In this case, when you have a bunch of people leaving Catholicism, often not for any particular doctrine, but simply because... They're not catching, as it were, the Catholic call. Mm-hmm. They're not catching the Catholic message. They're not, you know, really uh, drinking in deeply what it is to be Catholic. Well, that is a call for us to do that better. Mm-hmm. And so now the response, in a big way, is on all of us to take up the mantle uh, of evangelization anew and fresh, especially uh, lay people who maybe in the past were content to sit back and count on the clergy to do it for them. Right. Yeah, definitely a call to the laity. When it comes to the new evangelization, while it is definitely important to look at it through that lens, it's also good to go back to our roots too as Catholics. When we're looking at our conversion to Catholicism, if you're a convert or your Catholic faith, if you grew up in the Catholic faith, most of us who are in the Catholic faith would be considered Gentiles. We don't come from a Jewish heritage. So when we look back in the history of the church, one of the greatest evangelists in, when it comes to evangelizing to the Gentiles, is St. Paul. I mean, arguably, St. Paul is the greatest evangelist who ever lived. And so the whole history of Christianity would be radically different without St. Paul and his mission in the church. And Paul has some sense of this, actually. He's not afraid to admit this. In the first two chapters of Galatians, when he's contrasting himself from St. Peter and comparing himself, he, he says, you know, St. Peter has this mission particularly to the Jews. And so St. Paul speaks of himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he is tremendously successful. And so if you're a Gentile, chances are you were converted by someone who is converted by someone who's converted by Paul. I mean, if you trace that back enough, your spiritual lineage, your spiritual heritage Mm -hmm. can largely be traced back to him, which means that there are probably about a billion people today who are Catholic in some part uh, because of St. Paul's works of evangelization. And now that's just his actual going out and evangelizing. In addition to that, you have the fact that he writes all these different books of scripture. Mm -hmm. And those books have been a powerful source of conversion for people as well. So the numbers are massive in terms of uh, the number of people he's touched for Christ. So if we want to learn how to evangelize, and we have this fresh challenge of evangelization, it seems like we could learn a lot from going back to St. Paul. So Chloe... Will you share with listeners um, the framework that St. Paul sets in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18 to kind of prepare us for the spiritual combat that is evangelization? Yeah, absolutely. So St. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness 
against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So there's a lot there, but I think we can really draw out from that maybe seven major points. Uh, The first of them is that St. Paul reminds us to rely upon God rather than on ourselves. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Well, why does he begin with that? Because maybe the hardest part of evangelization is that we want to be the heroes. We want to be right. We want to do it all on the strength of our own brilliance. We want to do it all ourselves. Like, we want a win for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that frequently isn't the way that God wants it to happen. So it's a a huge mistake. It's one of the surest routes to failure. And, of course, if you look at someone's conversion, rarely uh, is there just kind of one conversation and they Mm -hmm. say, oh, okay, you're totally right. I'll become Catholic. And chances are... Um, If you were to really look at why a person converted, a lot of different people play an important role. And most of them don't get to see the fruit that it bore. So if you are relying on yourself rather than God, you're going to be frustrated very quickly. And you're going to be very ineffective because you're not strong enough for the challenge. This also puts a lot of it on you too, which leads us to believe that like we can change people's hearts, which is not true. It's a God who works to convert people the faith right like we think that the faith is something we can just argue a person into Mm -hmm. and a lot of the points saint paul makes are i think best understood as an answer to that misunderstanding of evangelization we i think certainly in terms of conversations i've had with people and requests i've gotten from people there tends to be this hunger for some sort of ironclad argument we could use that once people hear it they just have to become Catholic. And it's a kind of a disrespect, I think, of free will. Yep. It also doesn't respect the work of grace or the way that faith is a gift. And we can get much more into that in a second. But I think when you're doing it on your own, you are really usurping the place of God mm-hmm. rather than serving as his instrument. Very much so. Yeah. Apologetics and evangelization is not a fillable form. It's not something where you say, if you say a ex-Protestant friend will respond with B, which then your response, you pull out C, and that's not how it goes, and that doesn't respect them as a person either. Yeah, I think there's a big market for that, honestly, Mm -hmm. within the Catholic Church, where if you promise that, you can fill a room with people who are hungry for it, you can get a lot of clicks on your site, right? but it's just not true, and people will become disheartened pretty quickly when they take your foolproof plan and it turns out not to be so foolproof. Right, and at the heart of that desire is something that's good. It's a twisted good. There's a desire to bring people to the faith and to show them what the truth is, but it's not done with this, yeah, this ironclad argument. That first point about being strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might is really St. Paul saying, remember, you are weak and God is strong. And the minute you forget those two facts, the minute you're sunk. So the second point St. Paul makes is really related to this. It's a reason we need to remember that we're weak. And that's because he tells us who we're really up against. So it's easy to say, well, our enemy is people who hate the Catholic Church or people who argue against the Catholic Church or, you know, you name it. And St. Paul says no. 
He says, we are not contending against flesh and blood. That is, we're not arguing, like, we're not fighting. We're not fighting against humans. But against the principalities, against the powers, against the worldly rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's a lot of really scary imagery Mm -hmm. packed into a very uh, kind of succinct package. And that's for a good reason, because our real enemy is Satan himself and his whole spiritual hosts of wickedness. In other words, not only are you weak, but you're up against the devil and his army. And every demon is stronger and smarter and more powerful than you. Now, of course, it's also, maybe more positively, um, a good reminder that we're not fighting against the people or not contending against the people who are objecting to Catholicism ultimately. So I want to read a, a quote here to give you a sense of who we might think our enemy is. It goes like this. But I'll admit... It's hard for me to come up with historical evidence of Jesus as Messiah that would be convincing to me in a letter. I don't think any truly persuasive evidence exists either way on the historical question of Jesus' existence. I'm glad to look at arguments on this topic, but to be honest, it's frustrating to pour through conflicting secondary sources when I don't have the training to evaluate their arguments or examine the primary sources myself. Thus, I'm not ever likely to be moved by historical evidence for the truth of Christianity. In fact, if I were only confronted with historical evidence, I'd be especially dubious about the proposed religion. A religion whose effects have only occurred in the distant past could hardly be expected to change my life in the present. End quote. So you hear that, and I think it's easy to say, all right, let's crush that argument. Let's just Mm -hmm. destroy this person who's making this argument that maybe Jesus didn't even exist like and that the historical evidence couldn't possibly be persuasive and that historical evidence can't bring you to a living like come on let's let's destroy this you know like and that's the kind of combative and contentious uh response I think is easy to get into Mm -hmm. but of course we don't want to do that this is a person who should be won over to Christ instead I've chosen that quote uh on purpose because from 2010 by Leia Labrisco. And if you are familiar at all with her story, she was a pretty prominent atheist blogger uh, who had dated a Catholic and so started a, a blog called Unequally Yoked to kind of explore what that was like. She was curious about Catholicism. I think that relationship didn't end up working out, but she continued to be sort of interested in Catholicism. So a brilliant, curious atheist. Well, in 2012, she actually converts to Catholicism. What's her tipping point? Yeah, well, I think to find out her tipping point, uh, she's going to have to come on the show and tell us herself. So, <laughs> Leia, if you're listening to this, <laughs> consider this an invitation to the Catholic podcast. <laughs> but my point is that she was never the enemy, right? Right. And so we weren't contending against her, even when she was an atheist. Just like we're not contending against atheists today, even ones who are disrespectful. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone, they might attack you. Uh, They might attack Mama Mary. They might attack Jesus. They might attack the Catholic Church. They might say some horrible kind of vicious stuff. And we have to say, no, no, I'm not contending against flesh and blood. Underlying all of that is that this is a soul for whom Jesus died on the cross. And we want his blood not to be shed in vain for that person, Mm -hmm. but to bring them to really experience the grace and mercy of what it is to be Catholic. When we, I think when we 
forget that and see it as an us versus them, we're letting the devil win. Like the devil thrives in divisiveness. You look back on the original split in heaven between Satan and those who followed him and Michael and the Lord and those who stayed with the truth. It's this division and he thrives in division. And so letting that division happen within our own efforts of evangelization is letting him win ultimately. Yeah, he is a great accuser Mm -hmm. and he wants to tear us and the other person down because remember, he isn't just like, I hate you. He also hates the person you're arguing with. Right. He wants to see both of you miserable. He wants to see you both ground down. Yep. And if he can accomplish that, uh, he does win. Mm -hmm. Where you think of yourself as the one who has to win and think of the other person as the enemy, both of which are wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there are a few symptoms of that. May not be every time, but I would watch out for these things. Um, Watch to see if you start struggling with pride when things are going well. Or when you start struggling with the temptation to deceive, maybe Mm -hmm. when they're not going as well. Or when you start struggling in general with a lack of charity, when you start uh, treating the other person less like a Christian ought to treat another human being. If you see those things going on, and those, I mean, I want to emphasize, those are very human temptations. Yeah, very much so. Because we are weak. But when you see those things going on, it might be a good reason to pause and say, okay, Who's the real enemy here? Mm-hmm. And who's the real strength here? And if you get those two things right, hopefully it'll help recalibrate the rest of your attitude. Right. So let's talk about the third point. Yeah. Uh, Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God. And he begins by saying to gird your loins with truth. So let's talk about that very, uh, very concretely. Let's say the other person that you're speaking to raises a real stumper of a question. And you just don't know the answer. No matter how much you know about Catholicism, that will always happen. And I want to make that very clear out the gate. When you talk to Catholics about why they don't do more to convert, they're always afraid someone is going to stump them. Which is itself kind of a prideful attitude, if you really want to be honest about it. That you're worried about being embarrassed more than you're worried about bringing that other person to Christ. No judgment, but that's terrible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like... That's just not a good reason uh, not to evangelize. But on the other hand, even if you do all the research in the world, people will sometimes ask the weirdest questions. (laughs) And you just had no idea uh, that you should even be prepared for it. I'll I'll give you a concrete example from my own life. I did a five or six part weekly series years ago at Prince of Peace Church in Olathe, Kansas. We'll talk more about Prince of Peace in a minute, or at the end of the episode. But the first few weeks we had all planned out. And the last one we'd reserved for a Q&A day. And so at every talk, we'd pass out little slips of paper and let people write down what their questions were. Mm-hmm. And on the last day, we answered as many of them as we could. And the advantage to this was that it gave us time we needed right. uh, to do a little bit of research and to figure out kind of a clear and succinct way to answer the questions. Mm-hmm. The questions were so strange in some cases. I hope I'm not embarrassing anyone. I'm just saying, like, when I say strange, I mean, like, the things I thought people were going to ask and the things people actually asked were, like, 100 miles apart. (laughs) And so it was great for me uh, because I had to listen to know what people's actual concerns and struggles were. So often when you're sitting back at home and you're saying, I want to share the faith. How do I prepare for that? What are they going to ask me about? You're probably wrong. You probably have no idea Mm -hmm. 
uh, what they're going to ask about because it's going to be something that, from your perspective, is just kind of off the wall. Right. And it's going to be unique to the person that you're talking to, too, because the reason they're asking that question is because part what you know somewhere along their story that came up and you can't know that before you start a conversation with exactly. them. exactly the number of times i've had to answer questions about something someone has seen like on the history channel or something <laughs> That's awesome. where i'm like i have no idea uh <laughs> what documentary you're talking about here and i don't this sounds strange but let me let me get back to you on it yeah so that'll happen but so when that happens when someone raises a stumper of a question i mean what's the temptation to make up some answer or kind of BS your way through something because you want an answer to give them. Right, exactly. You, if you don't out and out lie, you at least pretend like you know more than yeah, you do. Yeah, stretch the truth a little bit, yeah. Or, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll at least, like, hazard a guess. Right, right. Even though you have no Not reason clue. to believe that you have any idea what you're, you're talking about. <laughs> but that's not what Paul tells us to do. He says, nope. gird your loins with truth. And I mean, why do we have this temptation? Because we want to save face for ourselves. Yep. Or because we buy into the lie that if we don't lie or don't tell a half-truth or don't venture a guess, uh, we're going to lose and alienate the other person. Mm. That forgets who our real enemy is. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And God is the God of truth. And so lying is losing. So when you're faced with a stumper of a question, I would suggest... To lead with humility instead. Yes. Um, Scott Sauls points out that humility is a virtue we admire in others and desire most in our family members, closest friends, and confidants. In other words, like true humility is insanely attractive. In other people, at least. <laughs> we don't always want it for ourselves, but we always want it for those around us. And so, when we are afraid to lead with humility, we're forgetting the attractiveness of humility. We're forgetting that, no, people don't just want to know it all. They want someone who is trustworthy and reliable and humble. And they're more likely to believe a humble person. Mm -hmm. So when that situation comes up in conversation, what is a good humble response? Here's the response that I like. Something like this. Wow, that's a good question. I don't know. Why don't I do a little research and get back to you next week? Let's unpack that a little bit. What makes that a good, humble response? So I think there are four things that responding in this way does for you. First, it validates the other person's question. You know, you begin by saying, well, that's a good question. Yeah. And so there's that old adage that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Mm -hmm. And so I think we should take that seriously. That tends to be the case. If you come off as an arrogant know-it-all, people will tune you out even if you're technically correct. Right. But if you validate them, if you show that you care about them and are trying to convert them, not just win an argument, or that you're really investing in them, even more importantly, mm -hmm. then they're more likely uh, to take you seriously and to listen to what you have to say. But you're also, by saying that's a good question, you kind of build, a, I would call it a reservoir of trust. If you really validate, in, in a, not a superficial way, but in a real way, validate right. the kind of questions that they're asking and recognize that they're on a serious quest for truth, then you've built a camaraderie that works in both of your favor and makes them more likely to trust what you have to say and to give you credit for good responses rather than a contentiousness where I have to beat you or you have to beat me. Now, together, we're trying to find out what the right answer is. We're trying to have a conversation that leaves us into a better understanding of the truth. So that's the first reason. Uh, second, it does, I mean, it leads with humility, 
And that builds trust because of the insane attractiveness of humility. We trust humble people more than we trust arrogant ones. And so the next time you do give an answer to one of their questions, not only have you changed the landscape such that they're more likely to give you points for good answers, they're also more likely to trust your answers because they know you're not just like afraid to be silent. You're not afraid to admit ignorance. You're not afraid to admit when you don't know the answer. So when you are saying, I actually do know the answer to this one, well, good. I trust a little more that you do actually know the answer to right, that Right, because you know when to admit that you don't. Right. Mm-hmm. So over the long term, you've actually in- increased the reliability and trustworthiness and believability of the rest of the message you're presenting by acknowledging your own weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Third, behind this and kind of underneath it is a certain truth uh, about the gospel, about the church, because you're not saying... Wow, that's a good question. I guess we'll both become agnostics, or I'll never know the answer, or Mm -hmm. you're saying, let me do a little research. Implicit in that is the idea that, as the X-Files famously said, the truth is out there. Yeah, it's the difference between saying, I don't know the answer, and sorry, there is no answer. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing, and in some ways, uh, the most important thing, is you've set a second date. So, you know, let's say you've got a coworker mm-hmm. uh, who's going through a really hard time at work. And she opens up to you and she starts asking why you're Catholic. And you have a really good conversation about the faith and about why you are a Catholic. But then you don't ever make the step to continue the conversation or to, to get back with her. And then, like, the next day at work, she's feeling better. And she doesn't really want to, like, be that vulnerable anymore mm-hmm. with a coworker. She doesn't really want to reopen that can of worms. And it becomes uncomfortable for either of you right. to uh, jump back into it. Well, you get around that really neatly here. When you say, why don't I do a little research and get back to you next week or some specific time that you can then both set on your calendar? You're setting a second date. You're saying, okay, we're going to take a pause, at least on this question for now. But here's a time we both mutually agree We're going to have this conversation again. Then it becomes very easy to say, hey, Susan, remember how you asked about, you know, such and such a topic, the Dead Sea Scrolls or whatever? I did a little research and it turns out dot, dot, dot. And now you're off to the races. Now you're having a faith conversation again. And one that doesn't feel kind of forced or imposed upon Susan because she asked a question that you are getting back to her on. Right. And this values the fact that evangelization is about a relationship. This is about encountering them and coming back and encountering them again because you get to know people through conversation. It's not just a one and done. Yeah. I mean, there are going to be certain times and places where based on where you are, the circumstances you find yourself in, you're, you know, on a bus in Bolivia and the person next to you has some questions about why you've got a cross necklace. Okay. That's probably going to be a one and done. It's also going to be probably pretty rare. Yeah, not a lot. I mean, that's a very specific <laughs> scenario. But, I mean, those kind of things sometimes happen yeah. where a, a total stranger talks to you about mm-hmm. the faith or someone you just can't realistically have an ongoing accompanying kind of relationship with. Right. But the most fruitful ones tend to be long-term personal investment. Yep. And when you talk to people about why they converted, those are kind of all over the place in terms of Uh, common features is long-term personal investment in relationships so yeah uh, 
setting that up, you're really, you're respecting them Mm -hmm. and you're doing evangelization the best way that it's done. So all of that is obviously, it seems to me, so much better and so much more productive than that natural temptation to just be like, oh no, uh, the Sadducees were the ones who did the Dead Sea Scrolls and, you know, just kind of coming up with some smart sounding but wrong answer. So if that's enough on the third point, let's talk about the fourth. Because Paul tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And righteousness, we should really understand it as holiness here. Because he's saying that the most effective armor that we've got in this fight is holiness. And that makes sense. If the devil is really our enemy, then what's the best defense against the devil? Holiness. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be a smart answer. It's not going to be anything like that. So you can know. I mean, you can know all the proofs for God's existence. You can know... All of the arguments for the empty tomb. You can know all of the reasons why Matthew 16, for example, says Jesus started the church on Peter. And if you are not living the life of a saint, it's a waste of breath. Mm-hmm. I think that's especially prevalent today. Like we're living in a church that's been rocked by scandal recently. And a lot of that scandal comes from people who have forgotten what it means to live their vocation, but also what it means to live as a Catholic. And so an example of someone who's living out their Catholic faith in a vibrant, passionate way, is going to be, yeah, absolutely, it's one of the best forms of evangelization. I hadn't really thought about making that connection, but I think you're right. Mm -hmm. So much of the scandal was that people were afraid of looking bad, and they put more emphasis on looking right or looking holy or the church looking holy than on actual holiness. Right. Yeah, it's like the whitewashed tomb. Exactly like Mm -hmm. the whitewashed tomb. Yep. And so that's the temptation there. And Paul's basically saying, don't be a whitewashed tomb. Right. Um, Jacques Maritain referred to Leon Bloy, the French writer who Pope Francis is actually very fond of, as a blackened cathedral because the guy was just very abrasive personally. Uh-huh. And when people would meet him, they tended to really dislike him, including Jacques and Rissa Maritain, who became his friends. Like, they, this was not an initial, like, he's not a charmer by all accounts. Uh, but they said basically he was the opposite of the Pharisees, where they had this kind of good public faith, but were, were just rotted inside. Whereas he just seemed like a total jerk, but then turned out to be uh, seemingly a very holy man who, mm. who wrote some very beautiful things on the church. So <laughs> I like that idea that if you can't be both charming and holy, go for holy. Go for holy. Shoot for holiness. <laughs> Obviously, if you can be charming and holy, that's more winsome. Yep. Uh, blackened cathedrals don't always win a lot of people for Christ, <laughs> but that's the general idea. So you yep. don't be a whitewashed tomb. Now... That's more defensive when we talk about armor. But Paul also speaks elsewhere, especially in 2 Corinthians 6, Mm -hmm. about righteousness more in an offensive way. Offensive in the good sense, like going on the attack, not like alienating people. Because he talks about the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. So I like this idea of being armed with holiness. Because I think it overcomes and answers one of the most common and natural fears you know, I mentioned before, people don't feel equipped uh, for evangelization. But Paul is saying, well, the equipment you need ultimately is holy. Mm-hmm. Holiness. Yeah. So even if you're not the best at evangelization, even if you never remember chapter and verse in the heat of the moment, even if you're the worst debater in the world, even if you're a terrible speaker, you can still be an effective evangelist by being a saint. And that's what St. Peter means when he talks about explaining the hope that is in you. There's that famous line in 1 Peter 3, 15, uh, where he says, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Yeah. 
Well, if you don't have that hope in you because you're not living the faith, then you're not really presenting the faith. Because the faith, as Benedict XVI has said, it's not a system. It's not an intellectual idea. It's a person. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can't invite someone into that relationship if you have the equivalent of like a Wikipedia biography of the faith. You just have like some facts and figures. That's different than an actual relationship. Yep. You know, you might have like a creepy amount of knowledge about your favorite celebrity. You don't have a real relationship with them. Mm -hmm. So too, yeah. I mean, a lot of people approach evangelization by just being like, I know a weird amount about Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) It totally makes me want to become Catholic right now. (laughs) Right. But if you don't know Jesus and can like invite into a living relationship with him. Yep. You just, you can't really invite someone to something you don't have. Right. So I said before, like when you think... What are people going to ask me? What do I need to be prepared to know? You're probably going to guess the wrong stuff and still be stumped by some off-the-wall stuff. Likewise, when Catholics say, oh, I don't know enough theology to be an effective evangelist, they're saying a really good evangelist is someone who knows a ton of theology. But then when you talk to converts and say, who was really pivotal in your conversion? A lot of it's like, oh, my grandma's very Catholic And she really was someone I looked up to, or my mother-in-law, or my friend at work, or someone who, in a lot of these cases, is not obviously some brilliant theologian. They might know their faith pretty well, but their ability to articulate it in some erudite, educated way, maybe not. Mm -hmm. But they probably didn't need um, that erudition, that theological just chasm of like just random knowledge. And they were able to love and invest and share the faith, the hope that was in them Mm -hmm. in a winsome and attractive way that made other people listen to it and respect it. I also really like the way Pope Benedict put it. He puts it in very personal terms. He says, to me, art and the saints are the greatest apologetic for our faith. The arguments contributed by reason are unquestionably important and indispensable. But then... There's always dissent somewhere. On the other hand, if we look at the saints, this great luminous trail on which God passed through history, we see that there truly is a force of good which resists the millennia. There truly is the light of light. What I like about that quote is that no matter how good your intellectual arguments for the faith are, someone can find a reason not to believe them. Most arguments have rebuttals. Mm-hmm. And so you can say, here are Thomas's five ways of knowing the existence of God. But those are ways of knowing the existence of God. Thomas is not saying, here are five silver bullets that no atheist can possibly ignore or deny. Because Thomas was wise enough to understand mm-hmm. that you can choose not to believe. There is an aspect of free will in faith. And it takes, so we think of faith as primarily in the intellect, which is true. But it also involves the will. And so if you don't want to believe, God always gives you enough outs not to believe. Or else it's not really faith. If you just have the certainty of knowing a thing and having no need for trust, that's not really faith. So faith isn't just uh, believing in something that isn't so, as Miracle on 34th Street said quite (laughs) terribly. That's a terrible understanding of faith. But it is um, an act of trust. Mm -hmm. And there's no trust if there's no way out. If you're just accepting a logical syllogism that you couldn't possibly think otherwise, then that's not really faith. 
So the intellectual arguments, you can always find a way out. So the only, if you will, unanswerable argument for the truth of the faith is holiness. The whole Catholic case, in a serious way, could be made simply by pointing to the saints and really getting to know their biographies and saying, where's the atheist Mother Teresa? And here's the thing. Smart atheists on some level know this to be true. This is why Christopher Hitchens has an entire book slandering Mother Teresa. Because he recognized, on some level, that she's one of the best arguments for Catholicism. Yep. And we often don't. We think it's going to be some dry intellectual argument. So if you want to be a really good evangelist, a really good argument for the faith, be a saint. Yeah, strive for sainthood. So Paul's fifth point is to shod our feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one. Very simple point. Basically, Christ alone can give us peace. He tells the apostles, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's how he prepares them for the passion. He tells them that at the Last Supper, Mm -hmm. knowing that they're going to undergo the worst spiritual trial of their lives. And he tells them to cling to him and to cling to peace. And so if the devil can't separate you from Christ, he will try to separate you from the peace of Christ. Paul says, in short, don't let him. Mm -hmm. The sixth point. Paul says to put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In other words, lean on God and learn scripture. And we see this in Jesus' own temptation in the desert. When the devil attacks him, when you see that spiritual combat sort of unveiled, each time he's tempted, he responds with scripture. He quotes from Deuteronomy. And after the first time, the devil responds by trying to quote scripture at him. He tries to get him to jump off the temple by quoting Psalm 91. Uh, He will give his angels charge over you. And on their hands, they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So he basically says, jump off the temple, and the angels will catch you, by kind of selectively quoting and misrepresenting mm-hmm. the psalm. And Jesus responds, shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, he's quoting scripture at the devil who's misrepresenting scripture. Right. Now, all of that is a lesson for us, because Christ obviously could have said other things. He, he wrote Deuteronomy. <laughs> He could have said, here's some new thing that you haven't heard before. But he doesn't. He quotes scripture, so it's a good reminder to us when we're in these times of spiritual combat. St. Jerome says it like this. He says, if as Paul says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, and if the man who does not know scripture does not know the power and wisdom of God, then ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. Mm -hmm. So the final point that Paul makes, sort of setting a framework for evangelization, is to pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. You know, in the course of this podcast, we've described it, I think, accurately as spiritual combat. It might seem like your co-worker is just asking you some random question about the church, mm-hmm. but on the invisible level, there really is spiritual warfare going on there. And you need to, if you will, call in air support. Yep. You're too weak on your own. And the devil, you know, we've talked about before, the devil's a predator. And what do predators do? They try to get you away from the herd. They want to separate you from the ones in authority. They want to separate you from the stronger ones. This is what like a lion does when it's going after gazelles. It's what a sexual predator does when they try to get you away from your parents. It's, I mean, this is what predators do. Yep. 
And so when the devil says to you, yeah, you've got this. Don't worry about praying. What he's really saying is come over here without God. And he means something horrible for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I would say recognize that. Don't fall for it. Prayer is a way of holding on tight to the strength of God. But even more than that, it's a recognition that faith is a gift from God. Faith isn't something that we can give people. It isn't something that we can get ourselves either. It's something that the Lord gives us as a gift. And so it's something that we should ask him for. Exactly. And not just for ourselves, but for the people we're talking to. Right. So maybe, I mean, as you're listening to this, maybe you've got someone in mind particularly. And I just urge you to pause for a second. Push pause on this if need be. And say a prayer for that person for the gift of faith. This is a topic that, Joe, you're covering in a class that you're teaching right now. If listeners are local in the Kansas City area, where can they get more of this? Yeah, so this was material that I presented um, as week one of a four-week course called Why God, Why Jesus, Why the Catholic Church. And there are three times for it, uh, two at Prince of Peace in Olathe, Kansas, and one at Pius X in Mission, Kansas. So on Tuesday nights... At 7 p.m., this is September 18th, 25th, and October 2nd. We'll be looking in that order at arguments for God, arguments for Jesus, arguments for the Catholic Church. Then we'll be doing that again on Thursday mornings at 9.30 a.m. That's at September 20th, September 27th, and October 4th. That evening, still September 20th, September 27th, and October 4th, at St. Pius X in Mission, Kansas, we'll be presenting it a third time, at 7 p.m. So if you're interested, consider yourself now caught up to speed <laughs> and you can come to any of the classes. It's totally free mm -hmm. and there'll be materials and handouts. Um, I'll also be posting some or all uh, of the material on Shameless Popery. The Catholic Podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School of Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schooloffaith.com. So let's go ahead and close out this episode in a prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end.